Our second reading is from Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Hello again. We're going to spend some time looking a, a bit more at that passage in Titus. Now, do people, we, we can't hand out Bibles at the moment. Do people have your own Bibles with you? Some of you do. It'd be great um, going forward, particularly because we can't hand out Bibles, if you could bring your own Bibles from home so that you can make sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible says. In fact, even beyond COVID, it's a great practice to have, I think, to bring your own Bibles to church. Um, Christian, can we? Excellent. You're going to keep that up there? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to uh, continue to look at this now. Please let's um, pray, though, as we uh, continue to reflect on God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us by your spirit as we have read your word, and we do ask that you will give us the ears of faith and that we will have the faith that leads to obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Dave said, this passage raises the question for us of what kind of leaders does God want us to have? And it seems to me that the moral failure of church leaders has a devastating impact on the lives of individuals, on churches as a whole, and on the reputation of the gospel more broadly. And I'd be surprised if there are, if there are many of us who haven't heard particular examples of exactly this sort of thing happening, of Christian leaders doing serious damage to those they lead. I guess probably most devastating and most obvious at the moment is the abuse of children by ministers and church workers, and that's rightly coming into the light now. But other examples that come to my mind is affairs. I, I wish I was struggling to think of examples of pastors, youth leaders, Bible study leaders, kids church leaders, whose affairs have wreaked havoc in their own families and in the churches that they lead. And I've seen churches that are still bearing the scars of those affairs a generation later. Another example, I, I remember a guy who was a pastor in a church whose ministry and family life came unraveled because he couldn't keep his drinking under control. Or again, another example of whole church networks that have come crumbling down because the pastors were bullies. And I'm sure you can think of your own examples. The failure of church leaders can have a devastating impact. More positively, though, I can also think of plenty of examples where the faithfulness 
of good leaders has such a positive impact. And I think personally of my own Sunday school leaders and youth leaders and pastors who have had such a massive positive impact on my own life, and particularly because they lived the truth that they taught. They lived the truth they taught. You see, leaders make a difference. Whether good or bad, they make a difference. And as I said, this passage raises the question for us, what kind of leaders does God want us to have in our churches? And this passage will be helpful for us as we think about things like, what should we look for in potential leaders? What kind of people should we be encouraging into leadership and what should we be encouraging in those people? What should we look for in ourselves if we are aspiring to positions of leadership or if we are in a position of leadership? What should we pray for our leaders? There's a good question. What should we pray for them? But also, what kind of example should we all seek to follow? What, should we, what example should we follow? Let's, let's get into it and have a look at Titus. You might remember from last week that Paul began his letter to Titus by, talk, by telling him about the mission that he was on, the mission that God has given him. And now as he continues into verse 5, Paul is talking about his mission for Titus. And the two are connected. You see, Paul's normal practice was to go from town to town preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and those who put their trust in Jesus would form churches. And then often Paul would go back to those towns and strengthen and encourage and help those churches. But in this case, on Crete where Titus was, that second part Paul has delegated to Titus. You see, in verse 5, he says that he left Titus on Crete for the purpose of completing the work and putting into order things in the churches of Crete. And part of that involved appointing leaders in those churches. See, part of setting things straight, part of organising and establishing and helping those churches involves appointing leaders. In verse 5, in verse five and 6, those leaders are called elders. In verse 7, they're called overseers. And also in verse 7, they're called stewards of God's household. But those are all different ways of describing the same people, the leaders in the church. And I want to suggest right up front that this is not just for ordained ministers or the like. This is telling us what kind of people <clears throat> we should want in positions of leadership and particularly those positions of leadership that involve the teaching of God's word. And so it's also relevant for kids' church leaders and for Bible study leaders and for youth leaders and for scripture teachers. What kind of people should we want in these roles? And the main thing that we're going to see, the main thing is this, that the character and the convictions, the beliefs of leaders, is far more important than the competencies, than the skills of those leaders. Did you get that? The character and the convictions are far more important than the competencies and the skills of leaders. Now, of course, church leaders need to have competencies. They need to be competent in what they're doing. They need to be able to manage God's household and oversee the work, as it says in verse 7. They need to be able to teach 
and refute false teaching, as we're going to see. A pastor who is a bad teacher with terrible people skills, he's going to do a, a bad job as a pastor. But far more important in the qualifications of leaders is their character and their convictions. And verse 6 to 8 here deals with the character and verse 9 deals with the conviction. So those are the two points that we're going to be looking at, the character and the convictions of our leaders. So firstly, let's have a look at their character in verses 6 to 8. It says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. And I'm going to come back now through and look at some of these. But actually, I should have mentioned before, we are going to have a question time after this. So as I kind of go through things, perhaps a bit briefly, uh, bear in mind that there will be a chance to ask some questions that might come up on the way through. But notice at the beginning of verse 6, and then again in verse 7, the same thing is repeated. Do you see what it says at the beginning of verse 6? He must be blameless. That's right. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. That doesn't mean without sin. If it did, our list of potential leaders would be zero. What it means is that they should not be open to accusation, particularly in the areas that he's just about to mention in verse 6. So faithful to his wife. Must not be someone who is unfaithful, not open to the charge of adultery. Must be diligent in raising his children. That is not neglecting his family responsibilities, even for the sake of his ministry in church. You, you notice that in the business world, people often get ahead, don't they, at the expense of their family, at the cost of their family. You think of the ambitious father who is absent or who neglects his responsibility to his family, including the responsibility to discipline his children. This is saying that must not be the case for our church leaders. He must be someone who takes his parenting responsibilities seriously. Now, verse 7 continues to list other ways in which the elder, overseer, pastor is to be blameless. Not overbearing. That's talking about being stubborn and arrogant, that person who kind of digs his heels in just because he doesn't want to be wrong, doesn't want to give in not quick-tempered, that is not a hothead where everyone feels like they've got to walk on eggshells around them for fear of making them angry, not given to drunkenness, not violent, that's talking really about being a bully, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, it's good, I think, isn't it, that we have financial accountability in our church. It's good that we don't let staff handle the money, that's a good practice, but we still need leaders who are financially trustworthy. And I'm sure we've all heard stories, I guess particularly from churches in the US, of pastors skimming the books or manipulating people to line their own pockets. Safeguards are important, but we need to have trustworthy people to begin with. Now that's kind of, I guess, the negative list. Now the positive one from verse eight, and most of these are fairly self-explanatory, Hospitable, 
Although that's literally saying someone who loves the stranger, someone who cares for the stranger. And it seems to me that as Sydney increasingly becomes multicultural and transient and socially isolated, and I'm not just talking about because of COVID, more and more people, you notice, are disconnected from family and from society. We should be people, and pastors should be leading the way, leaders should be leading the way in loving the strangers, in loving the isolated, the outsiders. He loves what is good, it goes on. Self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. In many ways, this positive list is like the positive side of the negative one. Someone who is in control of their passions and their temper. Someone who is self-disciplined in those things. Someone who wants to do what is right with both God and people. Who clearly is making that a priority. So these are the list of character requirements. And there's a couple of things that I just want to point out about this. Firstly, I wonder if you, you read this list here, and particularly the first part of the list, and think, well, actually, is that really such a high bar? You know, not a greedy, womanising, drunk bully who neglects his family responsibilities. That's, that's what it says. And, and there's something in that. You know, part of the purpose of this instruction is to guard against the wrong kind of people in, in these roles. And so this is an important safeguard to have these criteria here. But it's also worth pointing out that the leaders that we look up to in the world are often like this, aren't they? Our business leaders, our sporting role models, even our political leaders. What we value in leaders means that we often overlook some of these flaws and, and, and failings in this area. And we can be easily wowed by impressive people, can't we? people who get things done, people who others want to follow, people with charisma and talent. But how many of our world's impressive leaders, people in leadership, are stubborn and quick-tempered, drunken, bullies, greedy? In worldly leadership, we care about what people are good at first, don't we? Of course, we also love hearing a juicy scandal in our leaders. We love hearing about that. It gets all over the news. But that rarely disqualifies them from what they're doing, does it? I remember a few years ago, there was a famous sportsman who was, was great at his sport. Uh, and then he retired from his sport and he, he became a famous media personality. And he was great at that too. People, people loved him. People followed what he was doing. People watched his shows. Until it came out that he'd been involved in a significant personal scandal and it was all over the tabloids, all over the news and he had to step down for a little while. But it wasn't long before he was back doing exactly the things that he had been doing before and nobody really cared. It had moved out of the news cycle and everyone seemed to have forgotten about it. Now you might think you know who I'm talking about but the sad thing is I could be talking about any number of people, couldn't I? It's not that uncommon. What this shows us is that God has different criteria when it comes to leadership. These things, these are the things that God cares about in our leaders. And so this is what we should care about. We need to make sure that we have a different leadership criteria than the world has. That's the first thing I want to mention under that, that heading of character. The second thing under this heading 
is that leaders are examples of what we should all be doing, right? See, this list of qualifications for leaders, this is not a separate list to what is expected of all Christians. Leaders are not like the elite SAS Christians with a whole other set of standards. It's not like leaders have to be faithful in their marriages, but everyone else can be unfaithful. It's not like leaders need to watch their temper, but everyone else can fly off the handle and it doesn't matter. It's not like leaders can get drunk, but everyone else can booze up as much as they want to. What this is telling us is that leaders should be chosen from among those who are clearly and actively seeking to live the Christian life that is expected of all of us. So I think it's significant that there's not just the negative list for leaders in verse 6 and 7, but also the positive one. Not just having no black marks against their name, but also pursuing, actively pursuing those positive attributes as well. Leaders, that is, should be examples of someone who is pursuing the godliness of the Christian life that we're all called to live. So maybe just take a moment now and have a look again at those characteristics, not just for our leaders, but for yourselves. Is there anything in that list where you think, actually, yeah, that's something that I need to work on? Leaders should be actively pursuing the character of the Christian life that we all should live. That's our first point, character. Verse 9 takes us to our second criteria for leaders, and that is their convictions, their firmly held beliefs. And this speaks really to the teaching role of our leaders. And again, what I want us to notice first up is that the focus is not on giftedness. The focus is not on being a, a dynamic preacher or a great scholar or a youth or kids' church leader who has a knack for keeping the kids riveted and engaged, as good as those things are. The focus is on their convictions. Have a look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Personal commitment to the truth of the gospel is a non-negotiable must for leaders. Now, I'd like to think that that goes without saying. I didn't even need to mention that, but history tells us that we do need to say that, that we do need to insist on it. I mentioned earlier about how the character of leaders, the, the failures in the character of leaders can be so devastating for churches. But leaders who don't have real gospel conviction that can permanently destroy whole churches and even whole denominations. And history has shown us that. We need leaders who are convicted about the truth of the gospel. That Jesus really did die for our sins to bring us to God. That he really did rise to life and is the Lord of all. And believe that this really matters that it actually matters. Not just kind of ticking off a checklist so I can sign on a dotted line, but holding fast to these truths when other people are challenging them or denying them. 
holding fast to these truths even when it is costly to do so, or to keep saying it. Holding fast to these truths when the world is moving on and saying that those ideas are old-fashioned or outdated, or even those ideas are bigoted. Words like sin and judgment aren't exactly popular these days, are they? Are we going to keep believing that they actually matter, that they're actually part of the gospel of the good news of Jesus, even when people keep saying, no, you can't talk about those things? We need leaders who are unashamed of the gospel and who are willing to defend it. I remember years ago I was talking to a friend of mine about a pastor whose conviction of the gospel was just so obvious. And my friend said, you know, that guy, he really believes that good theology is good for you. That's how he said it. He believes that good theology is good for you. You can see it in the way that he speaks about it and the way that he holds on to it. He wasn't just ticking a box that says, yes, I subscribe to these truths. He knew that the message of Jesus was true and good and he wanted to promote it and to defend it at at all costs. That's the kind of person who will be able to do what it says in verse 9, who will be able to encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, only when someone holds firmly and personally to these truths can they encourage others to do the same. Only when someone holds firmly and personally to these truths can they refute those who oppose it. And actually, holding firmly and personally to these truths is what will form the character that we talked about in point, in point one. You can't exhort others to trust and follow Jesus if you're not doing it yourself. It's a personal, life-changing conviction. Now, we're going to talk more about some of these ideas next week, so let me just finish with a couple of concluding thoughts. First thing I want to say is, if you ever want to know what to pray for me, particularly as I start my time here, then here's a great idea. I'd love for you to be praying these things for me, right, you know, ongoing, that I will have the character and the convictions that it mentions here, and that I always will. Secondly, God willing, we want to be a church that will continue to raise up a next generation of church leaders, right? What kind of people are we going to be looking for to tap on the shoulder and encourage in that direction? Because, you know, how we answer that question will actually make a difference to the health of the church for the next generation. That's pretty significant, right? That's the kind of difference it will make. Are we going to have God's priorities in this area and look for people whose character and convictions commend them rather than just the things that they're good at, their competencies, their abilities? But as I said earlier, this is not just for ordained ministers. The same should apply for any role of pastoral leadership. So let me give you an example. Do we say, oh, you know, Jenny over here, she's studying primary education. We should get her to teach kids' church. Wouldn't that be a good idea? Or do we say, Jenny over here, she's clearly convicted in the truth of the gospel and living it. 
She's the kind of person we should want serving in leadership. What can she do? You see the difference there? It's not that the first question is irrelevant. It's just that we need to be asking that second question first. And that's how I'm going to finish up this morning. Character and convictions must come before competencies, before abilities. That's what we should value in our leaders and it's also what we should value in ourselves. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognise that the things that our world values in leadership are not necessarily the same things that you value. And so, Father, we ask that where necessary, you will help us to change our priorities and to recalibrate our expectations for what we should look for in our leaders. Father, may we so value uh, a character shaped by your spirit in the likeness of your son, that these are the characteristics that we look for in your people. May we so value the good news of the gospel of Jesus that we want people whose conviction of that is clear in our leadership positions. And Father, may we be people, all of us, who are seeking to, to grow in these areas for ourselves. And we pray that this really will uh, be to the health of your church in the world, of this church here in Richmond, and that it will promote the glory of your Son in the world more broadly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.